Our scripture passage this morning is found in Colossians, spans two chapters, uh, Colossians starting in chapter 1, verse 21, and going through uh, chapter 2, verse 8. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. At one time, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. Thank you, Randy. It's probably a little bit strange when, uh, during the scripture reading, you see the pastor running for the door. Uh, I, I, realized, I realized I didn't have my microphone, so sorry. Anyways, uh, in the, the cartoon TV show, Scooby-Doo, some Scooby-Doo fans, 
It, it is a, a series about these four teenagers and their dog, Scooby, who are always looking to solve these mysteries. And one of the running jokes throughout the series is that one of the characters, Velma, she's the, uh, the, nerdy, the nerdy one of the bunch, Velma is always losing her glasses. She always tends to lose her glasses right when the monster's about to come on them, and then she can't see the monster when the monster's right on them. And so she's fumbling, and of course the joke is, how do you find your glasses if you don't have your glasses on? How do you see them if you can't see? Today we're continuing in our series on the book of Colossians, and this is a book that was written by an individual who was a contemporary of, of the original disciples. He knew them, interacted with them, Paul. And he, of course, was not a believer uh, from the beginning, but he became a believer. He actually, he, there was a period in t- a time when he was actually trying to stop the Christian movement from spreading. He, he thought it was a heresy. He wanted to try to prevent it from spreading. And then he actually converted, actually began to, to, to change his mind on that, became a Christian, and then ended up writing half of the New Testament, half of the letters that we have in the New Testament scriptures are written by Paul. He went around planting churches, uh, proclaiming what he had come to discover to be true um, about Jesus and about the world because of that. And so he went around planting churches, and then he would write letters to uh, different churches when he couldn't be there and so on and so forth. And this is what's going on here. He's, he's writing to this church in the town of Colossae in modern-day Turkey. And what he's, what he's saying here, and we've said the overall theme of this whole book, is that Jesus is Lord over all. Jesus is Lord over all things. He is Lord over all of creation. We sang the song that we just sang, where we sing, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, that comes from the book of Colossians, from the passage we looked at several weeks ago, that, that in Jesus the fullness of God is revealed, that God himself, God himself came to this earth in the person of Jesus to demonstrate the kind of God that he is and that he rose from the grave demonstrating his authority over all things, that he is indeed the Lord over all things. So we've seen he's Lord over all of creation. We saw he's Lord over the challenges and struggles and difficulties that, that we all face. And that whatever it is that we happen to be going through at any given uh, moment, any given season in our lives, we can have this, this assurance that it is not outside of God's control. Uh, I like to say that God is so in control that it doesn't need to look like he's in control. He's so in control. And so when things don't look like they're in control, they, he, he, like he has control, he, he is, that he is the Lord over all of our struggles, all of our difficulties. And, and today, we're going to look at the, the reality that he is Lord over all wisdom. He is Lord over all wisdom. And we, we see this here in verse, well, it's, it kind of emerges in a number of different a number of different places, but in verses 2 and 3, in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Paul says, My purpose is that, is that they, the church, may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures 
of wisdom and knowledge. He's saying that as you come to know Christ, he is, he is Lord over all wisdom, that you can come to know the, 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 the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that, that as you pursue Christ, it's like coming to a treasure chest and opening it up, and it is just full of treasure, of wisdom, of wisdom and knowledge, that, that Christ is Lord over all things. And when we say that he's Lord over all wisdom, this is it's important we're going to unpack this a little bit. It, 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 we're, we're not simply saying, right, that we believe that, that, Jesus, uh, that Jesus communicates true things to us. We're not just saying that Jesus is the truth. He is the truth. Uh, we're not just saying that we've come to believe that things about Jesus are true. Uh, we're not even simply saying that, that when we when we, that Jesus is the most clear and brightest thing in our field of vision, though that's true as well, it's actually even more foundational than that. What we're saying is that Jesus is what enables us to see at all. Jesus is what enables us to be able to see what is true at all, that he is, he is the, the foundation. He's, he's not just the brightest thing in our vision, though he is that, he, he allows us to see in the first place. He's like the glasses that we put on and allow us to have clarity and, and that, that apart from those glasses, we're a little bit like Velma fumbling in the darkness trying to see. So it's not just that, it's not, it's not just that Jesus is the, the brightest thing in our field of vision. He actually is what enables us to have vision in the first place. He's the foundation on which we can really know anything. Uh, Leslie Newbegin puts it this way. He says, I know of no basis, no axiom, no necessity of thought that requires me to believe that a historic person and a series of historic events provides a less reliable starting point for the adventure of knowing than does the highly sophisticated mental construct of a philosopher. Now, what he's getting at here is that we live, we're coming into the end of the modern age, and the modern age was, was really this attempt to find some sort of starting point for knowledge, some, some basis for, for being able to know what is true, and really what modernity was trying to do is trying to find a starting point for knowledge apart from God. That's what modernity attempted to do, was to try to discover uh, uh, something that they could hold on to, that we could hold on to as axiomatic, that we could build from, and from that we could know what is true. And now we've come into this postmodern age, and really what the postmodern age is saying is that didn't work. And what's interesting is I hear a lot of Christians that, that, that think the postmodernism is a bad thing. And there are some interesting things about it that aren't necessarily the best, but I would actually say it's incredibly helpful because what post-modernity has simply done is it's critiqued this modern perspective and said, hey, nice try, that didn't work. And so post-modernity is kind of left in this place of, well, we can't really find any truth at all. And as Christians, we can say, yeah, right, that, that's always been the way it is, that we can't know unless God reveals it to us. And so the, from a Christian, the starting point on which we come to know anything is Jesus. He's the lens through which we see everything. C.S. Lewis puts it uh, another way. C.S. Lewis being the sort of creative person that he says, 
I think, puts it in a little more accessible terms than how Newbigin puts it. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Let me say that again. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun, the sun that the earth revolves around, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. You can know the sun has risen without actually looking at the sun. (laughs) You know the sun has risen because you can see everything else. And in the same sense, Jesus isn't just what we look at and we see and we behold. That is true, but he is what enables us to see in the first place. And so this is what Paul's getting at. He's saying that when you, when you turn to Christ, he opens up this treasure full of wisdom and knowledge, this ability to actually see, and then he warns us, he warns us against hollow and deceptive philosophies, wherever that is here in verse, uh, in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. And, of course, there are, are, are all kinds which we will explore over the course of, of this series, a hollow and deceptive, right? Deceptive, like you don't, you don't see correctly because of it. Uh, it's hollow. It's, it's, it's like you go to open up that treasure chest of wisdom and knowledge, and you open it up, and there's nothing in there. It's deceptive. It's like you put those glasses on, and, and things are still foggy and fuzzy, and they don't really make a lot of, they don't make a lot of sense. And, and Lewis is articulating, he's saying, He's saying that the, the, the glasses that we put on, we put on the glasses of Jesus, give us the greatest clarity. And, and what I would suggest, I think this is helpful as we even sort of interact with those from different, different viewpoints, different worldviews. I, I don't think we have to simply say things like, well, Christianity is true and everything else is false. Like it's just either true or false. What we can say is that, is that look, Yes, your glasses, the glasses you're wearing, you may be able to see some things, but, but I would suggest to you that if you wore the glasses of the gospel, you would see even more clearly. You would see in, in HD. You'd see in full color. When, when Lewis is, makes this comment, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. It comes in the context in which he's addressing the, the philosophy, which you might just call it, of naturalism. Naturalism, this idea that, that you can understand everything in the world simply uh, seeing it through the lens of natural processes, that you can explain everything through naturalistic processes, that those are sort of the glasses that you might wear. And what Lewis says is that that, that those glasses, they don't, they, well, he, he doesn't quite put it this way. What he's saying is that it, that it cannot account for our experience in the same way that the gospel can. And he uses things like truth, or excuse me, beauty and love. And says, you know, a, sort of a naturalistic explanation of love and beauty. Well, what, what would a naturalistic explanation say? You experience love. Well, what is love? Well, it's, it's the firing of certain neurotransmitters in your head. Or what is beauty? Well, beauty is the firing of different neurotransmitters in your head, and that's what it is. And, and that is the, the totality of the explanation for what it is. 
And Lewis is saying that doesn't quite ring true. I mean, that's, there's, there could be truth in that. It's not like it's totally off, but it doesn't get the whole picture. It's, it's like, a, to use a different analogy, it's like, it's like imagine that you're packing a suitcase. And your, 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 your wife is like, honey, can you pack the champagne glasses? Maybe you're going away on your anniversary, and so you want to celebrate. Pack the champagne glasses. And so you, you don't really have room in your, in your suitcase, but you get them, and you, you cram them in there, and they break into pieces. And you close, and you're like, honey, I, I packed the champagne glasses. Well, okay, I guess you kind of did, but there's something about the integrity of it that's been lost. And that's what Lewis is, he, when he's addressing this issue of naturalism, it's like, okay, maybe you fit everything in there, but it just doesn't quite seem right. When we put on the glasses of the gospel, it allow, enables us to see more fully with greater clarity, with, with greater color, you, you might say. So, so what, what, what happens when we put the lens of the gospel on? What do we see? What are some things that really stand out when we put these glasses of the gospel on? I say the first thing that we see is that God is love. We put the lens of the gospel on and we see that God is love, that you are loved by God. We see this in the first couple of verses of twenty beginning 21 that was read. (laughs) Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. When we think about love in its greatest form. Is it not true that love in its greatest form is when you, you pursue and you care for somebody and you value them even though they don't reciprocate? Even though they turn away from you, even though they may not even realize what you're doing, the greatest kind of love is this love that, that goes after them whether they reciprocate or not, it's a love where there are no strings attached. And that's what this is talking about. It's saying once you're alienated from God because of your evil behavior, that the way in, in which humanity often we live our lives is we turn away from God and we, we deny the, the reality of God in our lives. And yet, and yet our God continues. This is saying once you're alienated from God, but this is a God who came for you. This is the heart of the Christian faith. And, and this is, I think it's so important because we live in a culture today where, and this is, I would suggest, is, is, is a hollow and deceptive philosophy that, ironically, I would suggest in some sense has actually come out of our Western Christian culture. And that is that we live in a society where many people will say, oh, yeah, God is love. I believe that God is love. This is something that we talked about at our shepherding meeting this past or last weekend. That people will say, oh, yeah, I believe that God is, is love. And what I would want to say is, well, what makes you think that? Well, where, where are you getting that from, this idea that God loves? And, and the point is that Christianity, there is this, there is this, this, this historical basis, this God came in the person of Jesus 
and served and, and served those who, who were not worthy of his service, who gave his life for his enemies. I mean, it's this, it's this concrete reality that God came and showed his love. And there's, there's nothing like that in any other religion. What is that, that grounding? And so I would say that that, that idea in our culture where people will say, oh, yes, God is love, it's, it's, I would suggest that in our culture it's sort of borrowed capital, as it's sometimes called. That borrowed capital, meaning that, that it's this idea that God is love is something that has kind of grown up because of the influence of Christianity in Western culture, that that would be the, the primary way. It's not the only way, but the primary way in which this idea that God is love came to emerge in Western culture. You go back before the time of Jesus, nobody thought God was love. Nobody thought that. And so we, we have this, what's happening is that you have this branch that grew from the root of the gospel, that God is love, but it's been severed from the root. And so now you just have people saying, oh, God is love, God is love, God is love. And I would suggest that the, that, that the farther a culture moves away from the gospel, eventually that will dissipate and the branch will begin to, begin to die. For the Christian faith, it's very clear. We have a God who, who loves us, who came for us, who died for us. And this stands in stark contrast to another philosophy that is present in our age. I mean, so it's kind of ironic. On one hand, you have people saying, God is love, God is love. But then on the other hand, we have this other hollow and deceptive philosophy which says this. You are loved based on what you do. You are loved based on what you do. If you do what you're supposed to do, you are loved and accepted and welcomed If you don't do what you're supposed to do, then you're not loved, you're not welcomed, you're not accepted. I remember (laughs) remember one time I was with some some friends that I had just met. They were friends of Laura's, actually. This is years ago. And I was introducing myself to them, and they started asking me all kinds of questions. I think it's because they knew I was interested in Laura, and they were looking out for her. So they were just asking me all these questions. It was kind of strange, asking me about my family. And somehow it kind of emerged that the, the reality is my, my father, my, my, uh, my mother, and my brother have all been quite successful people in terms of what they've done. My, my father's a violinist. He studied under, like, one of the top violin professors in the world. My mom published computer science textbooks, one that's in multiple languages. My brother went to medical school at Johns Hopkins. He's just, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then I'm telling them, and then I'm telling them about me, and I was like, yeah, and so then I got out of college, and I started playing guitar in coffee shops, you know, and uh, he's telling them about that, and I wasn't really sure what I was going to do, and and then I said, I said, I said, but then I did. I, I went to seminary, and I got a graduate degree and became a pastor. And, and uh, <laughs> the woman says, so is that when they let you come home for Thanksgiving dinner? And the truth is, that's not how my family is, fortunately. You know, there, there, there was never, I never felt that sort of pressure from them to excel in those areas but I think there are people in our culture, maybe you're one, where that's an environment people grow up in. That there are these expectations, maybe for you and, and your family, it's academic expectations. Don't come home for Thanksgiving dinner until you've gotten your second or third PhD, right? I mean, but, but maybe for others, it could be the complete opposite, right? In some other cultures, it's like, why are you still going to school? Get a job, right? I mean, it can be completely the opposite kind of pressure that you might find 
in your family. It, it, can, it can come from your, your peers. It can have to do with academic success. How about athletics? Right? I mean, how many fathers do we see trying to relive the glory days through their children? Right? You, you will be a linebacker. I don't care that you're five foot seven and 120 pounds. Right? This, 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 this pressure for our, us to live almost vicariously, maybe even not to relive glory days. Maybe we didn't even have glory days. And so we're trying to live vicariously through our children. How much do we see that? The pressure that I see, especially in this area here, to succeed, to succeed, to succeed. And, and if you don't, how many of us have felt not loved, not accepted, not welcomed? Unless I achieve, unless I reach this benchmark, I'm not really loved. I'm not really accepted. How many, how many women wrestle and struggle with their appearance? I have this sense that if I don't look a certain way, I'm not really, I, they'll, they'll pretend they like me, but I'm not really welcomed. I'm not really loved. I'm not seen quite the same way. How many of us find ourselves in so many different ways operating under this philosophy of you are loved based on what you do? And, and Paul wants us to see that as a hollow and deceptive philosophy. The heart of the gospel is that God loves you not on the basis of anything that you do. As I, as I like to say over and over again, your worth and your value, God, God does not love you because you have demonstrated yourself to have great worth and value. No, your worth and your value comes from the fact that God loves you. That's what makes you valuable. That nothing that you could accomplish could ever create, make you as valuable as the simple fact that the God, the creator of the universe, loves you. And Paul's saying is when you, you put these glasses on, the lens of the gospel, you see that God is love. It's the first thing. I think secondly... We see when we put the lens of the gospel on is that life is found through a relationship with this God. It flows. The first to the second. The life is found through a relationship with God. Look at the, the kind of language that Paul, Paul uses here. So, so Paul, he's talking, about, he's talking about how he has become a servant of the church. This is going in verse 25 in chapter 1. He says, I have become a servant, its servant, talking about the church. I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Think about what he's saying here. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, he's coming at it from this 
angle, and there are different angles that you can come at this from, but he's saying one way of looking at the entire Bible is that the entire Bible is God unfolding a mystery that ultimately reveals that he wants to be in a relationship with you. The whole Bible. That when it says here, you know, we read, it says, I became its servant by the commission God gave me to present, present to you the word of God. Now, when we think of the Word of God, of course, uh, we think of the Bible. That is the Word of God. And, And that's right, the Word of God. But notice how he refers to the Word of God. The Word of God in its fullness. What is the Word of God in its fullness? It's this mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. So what he's saying is that if you read the whole Bible and you read it, this is why we did an entire series for a year. It was called The Story, right? Because I said the Bible is not an owner's manual for life. It's it's not a book of timeless wisdom. Although, interestingly, we're going to look at one section that is the closest to that in the Bible. But as an overall, on the whole, the Bible is not just a book of timeless wisdom. It is a story. It is a story that unfolds and it comes to a climax. And, And what Paul is saying is that when you follow this story and you trace this story throughout the entirety of the Bible, it comes together and you discover this mystery, this mystery that, that was hidden for generations and now is being disclosed. And what is this mystery? What is it all pointing to? That God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. That God desires to be in a relationship with you. The God who is love desires to be in relationship with you. Let me show you one other spot. I want to go back, actually, to the book of of Proverbs. Now, if there ever was a book that is a book of timeless wisdom, it is the book of Proverbs. And and again, this is why even when when you read the book of Proverbs, it's It's a book you don't just read on its own. It fits within the overarching narrative of Scripture. But if ever there were a book that's just a book of timeless wisdom, it's the book of Proverbs. It's one of the five books of wisdom, the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And I think, and and this is kind of an interesting passage that very subtly hints at the importance of a relationship with God and in fact seems to suggest that wisdom that discovering wisdom is inherently tied to being in relationship with God. Let's look here. This is Proverbs chapter 9. Now, this is interesting here. Beginning in verse 7, actually, that's, these aren't even the verses I'm interested in reading to you, but what I want us to see here is that verses 7 and verses 8, and then we're going to come to verse 9, but verses 7 and verses 8, what it's setting up here for us is that this, these verses are little couplets, So the first half of the verse says something, and then the second half of the verse basically says the same thing, but in different language, more or less, right? So let me just show you this. This is chapter 9, verse 7. It says, Whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes a wicked man incurs abuse. It's the same thing. Verse 8, Do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Basically the same thing, just flip side of the same thing. Now look here in verse 9. I think this is really interesting. Instruct a wise man, and he will be wiser still. That's the first part. The second is 
Teach a righteous man, and he will add to his learning. Now, what's interesting about this is that the term righteous, you know what this is? You know what a righteous person is in the Bible? A righteous person is a person who is in right relationship with God. That's what a a righteous person is, a person who's in right relationship with God. So it seems like it's almost like a, what you would call a category mistake, a category transgression. Because at first, wait a minute, are we talking about a wise person? Or are we talking about a righteous person? Are we talking about a person who knows a lot of things? Or are we talking about a person who is in relationship with God? And the answer is yes. Because anything that counts as true wisdom comes from being in relationship with God. And then it goes on, it kind of unpacks a little bit what this relationship looks like. Verse 10. And again, we're going to see this. It's tied to wisdom. Verse 10, one of the, a famous verse in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, once again, here, here we see it. Wisdom begins with God. This is why the whole modern enterprise to try to find truth apart from God failed. And now why everybody thinks there's no such thing as truth. It begins with God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we've seen here, we're talking about this relationship with God. Now, when it's talking about the fear of the Lord, what what are we talking about here? And I think when we look at this in the Old Testament, this kind of relationship is is a reverence before God. There is this reverence and this respect. That's what I think kind of uh, characterizes the relationship that it's talking about. And this is something that you find a theme moving throughout the Old Testament. And I like to say, and this is obviously somewhat trivial, but as an analogy, I think it can be helpful, is that the fear of the Lord, that reverence, is a little bit like, but to a much greater degree, the kind of reverence you might have for a really good boss. A really good boss, um, a boss whom you, you respect, you have reverence for them because they're really good and they, they, they treat you well. They provide for you well. They provide opportunities for you to grow. They provide opportunities for you to flourish. They provide opportunities for you to become the very best you that you can be. Isn't that what a good boss does? A good boss does everything that they can to help you flourish, to help you become the very best at whatever it is that you do. Now, what that means is that, I mean, a good boss is often demanding. They do expect a lot from you. Um, I remember in a slightly different context, my favorite teacher in high school gave me my only B. She ruined my shot at being valedictorian at my school. I had to sit there and listen to Jason Eichbush give the valedictorian speech, and he only took easy classes. He just took easy classes. I took Mrs. Maxfield, and she was my favorite teacher because she helped me to grow. She helped me to flourish, and she was demanding. I ended up getting a B in her class, but she, she worked me hard. But there was this, this reverence, this sort of respect, and I think that we see that working throughout the Old Testament, that that's the sort of relationship that we find. Now, what's interesting then is when you come to the New Testament, you keep that same analogy, and I want you to imagine this. Imagine that boss who has been, has worked you hard, 
right, has given you opportunities to grow and to flourish. And then imagine that the company is downsizing. And your boss is asked to make a bunch of cuts. And you know what your boss does instead? They fire themselves to save your job. Imagine that. And we've heard of bosses that will do this. Like, I don't want to fire these people. They've worked hard. They've got families. I don't want to do this. Take me out. You know, you're paying me too much anyways. Take me out and keep them. That's what we find in the New Testament. The same God, it's the same God of the Old Testament. This reverence and this respect is there. But now you see a whole new side of this God. And the relationship takes an interesting turn. Wouldn't your relationship with that boss change a little bit if they did that? There's a, there's a personal nature to it. They, they have personally made a sacrifice for you. And now I think that changes the relationship. There's, there's almost an intimacy that naturally emerges from that. Because now it's not just about work anymore. So we see this, that this relationship with God, first it's this reverence before God, and then in the New Testament we see it's this incredible intimacy with God, that this is the beginning of wisdom. And that pursuing the relationship with that God is what leads to wisdom and is what leads to life. And this is what the Apostle Paul, you know, he doesn't just say this kind of stuff. You can tell that he lived this because Look with me here in Philippians chapter 3. This is a passage that I often turn to. Philippians chapter 3. This is what he's come to realize, that this is more important than anything. If if I want to be able to see clearly, if I want to be able to experience life the way I can actually experience life, I've got to get rid of all of these other things. I've got to see clearly. I've got to focus in on this one thing. This is what he says here in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, he says, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. He's saying this this is it. This is what enables me to see. This, being in relationship with God, this, this is what leads to life. And so I'm getting rid of everything else. And so he's saying, let's throw off all of those other philosophies of life that are at work, that are at work trying to convince us that there's some other way to find life. What, what are we talking about here? Well, most basically, I think it's, it's interesting, again, to look at, at how Paul words this when he talks about hollow and deceptive philosophy. Going back to Colossians, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than Christ. Here, in its most basic form, this hollow and deceptive philosophy, which can manifest itself in a number of different ways, is simply this. It's when we come to believe that life is found through pursuing things in this world. It's hollow and it's deceptive. 
when we think that life is going to be found through pursuing things in this world, he's saying that it's hollow and it's deceptive. Whether it's seeking to find success in this world, whether it's seeking to find material possessions, material gain in this world, whatever it is, it's saying this is a hollow and deceptive philosophy where we are looking to find life in this world. And, and the reality is, is that this, this actually, I, I, I would suggest that we even have a, a baptized version of this. What we've done is, uh, to, to put it this way, this philosophy that I'm talking about is a philosophy that lives out of this idea that this world is all that there is. This world is all that there is. Um, Charles Taylor, a philosopher, talks about how uh, our, our culture is moving from uh, where, where we understood something known as the transcendent, and now all we know of is the imminent. He calls it the imminent frame. And so all, all, all we have this little box, which is this world, and it's within this imminent frame that we look to find life. And the reality is, is that I think it's easy even for Christians, even for those of us who mentally say we believe in the transcendent, we're so caught up in the waters of modern secularism that our hearts can end up moving into this and buying into this philosophy, whether our minds say it or not. And so in our hearts, we're really living from this reality that this world is all that there is, and so I've got to try and find life in this world. And then we even have a, a, like I said, we have a, a baptized version of this. It's called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is just, uh, it's, well, yeah, it's about gaining material things now, being blessed with material things now, and, and baptizing it and saying it's something Christian. But it's really just this imminent frame. It's saying this, it's this, let's try to find life in what is here, what is present here. And Paul's saying no. That's hollow, that's deceptive. When you put on the the glasses, the lens of the gospel, you realize that life is found in being in a relationship with this great God. Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. I know that for me, those, those moments when I'm closest to God, the inevitable, this is what emerges from it, is I'm completely at peace with what I have. In fact, the, 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 the time in my life when I identify as having really come to know the Lord and, and making a commitment for Him, that's what it was marked by. I like to say I was, I was 12 years old, and I just remember just being in this place where I said, I have everything that I need right now. I have everything that I need right now. Now, you know, when you're 12 and, you know, everything's kind of given to you anyways, it's probably not quite as powerful, right? And so, but later on in life, I've come to discover that as well. There are more challenges, right? There's more challenges coming at you when you get older and you have more responsibilities. And so it's easy to get pulled away from that. It's easy to get distracted from that. But for me, without any question, those moments when I'm closest to God, what emerges from that is the sense of, I have everything that I We put on the glasses of the gospel. We see that God is love. We see that life is found through being in a relationship with God. And finally, we see that life is also found through giving our lives for others, not seeking things for ourselves. Closely related to the second one. 
We discover that life is found as giving ourselves for others. And this emerges not really through anything that Paul says or uh, not through anything that he exhorts the church to do, but simply through his example that emerges in this passage, right? We go back to verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. He's talking about how he has given up all kinds of things. He's experiencing persecution. He's experiencing all kinds of challenges and sufferings. He's giving himself for the sake of the church. Now, listen, this is, this is not, he's not talking about, you know, for those of you who are sort of, you know, theological geeks kind of deal. He's not saying that he like, atoned for their sins. That's not what he's talking about here. Like, like somehow Christ's death on the cross was not sufficient for atonement. That's not what it's saying. All that he's getting at is he's, he's living out this reality of what Jesus has called the church to do. And that is to, through union with Christ, to do exactly what Christ did for us. That just as Christ gave his life for us, that we're, we're called as the church, as the body of Christ, to go and give ourselves for one another and for the world. So, so that's what he's getting at here. And he has discovered that this is what leads to life. And, of course, this naturally flows out of the, out of the second one, right? Why is, it, why is it that we can give our lives for the sake of others? Because we already have everything we need in our relationship with God. Why can we give ourselves for others? Because we already have everything that we need in our relationship with God. It's like the individual in the, you know, the plane, the plane crash thing, the plane's going down and the oxygen masks come on and, and the person who can help the child sitting next to them put the oxygen mask on is the person who already has oxygen, already has what they need. And the person who has that relationship with God is able to give. And, and I, I, I just want to say, I hope, hopefully I won't be embarrassing him here today, but when I think about someone who I, I have seen this over the years kind of playing itself out. I see this in our elder Randy. You know, nobody talks about the importance of a relationship with God as much as Randy does. I mean, he's just always coming back to it, always bringing it up, always bringing, you know, it's just always talking about the centrality of a relationship with God. And what I see in Randy is Randy is a person who, who like just about, more than just about anybody I know, is really giving himself to serve others. Giving himself, that's what he dedicates his life to do. And I thank God for that. And I, I, don't, I don't really praise Randy for that. I praise the Lord for revealing to Randy that life is found through having a relationship with God. And the more that you know that, the more that you can begin to give because you're not worried about getting. You already have everything. you need. So here's my question for you. What are the, what are the glasses that you're wearing? What's the lens through which you are seeing this world? The prayers that we would put on the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning and we praise you. that you have not left us in darkness. God, that you have not left us like 
Velma struggling to find her glasses, Lord, that you have given us sight. God, we're so easily distracted, so easily tempted to remove them and put on a lens that is deceptive and does not provide us with true wisdom and knowledge. God, I I pray that in our hearts and in our minds, we would know that you, Lord Jesus, are the Lord over all wisdom. I pray this in Jesus' name.